as I mentioned. Uh, welcome, my name's Ashley, and I serve as one of the pastors in training here. And it's a real encouragement uh, to be here. It's a blessing. Thank you. And uh, it's great to see so many faces. Um, at home on the live stream as well, welcome. And uh, we pray that you will be encouraged and blessed as God's word is read and preached. Let me pray before we start. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our great rock and redeemer. Amen. That's a bit of feedback. I do apologize about that. <laughs> um, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to uh, add my welcome again. Um, we are preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians um, is a book that bears the heart of the Apostle Paul almost like no other. Uh, one author summarized the, the theme of the entire letter in this way. Be confident in the weak but authentic ministry of gospel proclamation. Say it again. Be confident in the weak but authentic ministry of gospel proclamation. It's a book that bears Paul's weakness. And the section that we're in this morning, the text that Kath read to us a moment ago, um, falls into a larger section, chapter 2 to 7. And it's essentially Paul defending his ministry, both, both the means and the method of his ministry. And so he defends the means of his ministry. He uh, identifies that it's a spirit-filled, Christ-oriented, life-giving, powerful ministry. Uh, Liam last week showed us that he com uh, Paul compared his ministry to the Old Testament, compared himself to, to Moses and the glory that Moses received when meeting with the living God. And Paul says, no, our ministry is more glorious the new covenant ministry far surpasses the old. And so the means is spirit-filled, Christ-oriented, full of glory. The method is bold, faith-filled proclamation. It's, it's not rhetoric. There's no clever advertising sales trickery. Uh, no clever sales pitch. But setting forth the truth plainly clear, Christ-oriented. And so having read particularly the last chapter, chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4, you might be forgiven for thinking that Paul is kind of almost starting to boast that such a, such a wonderful calling, such um, impressive revelation, such a glorious ministry might make Paul and his fellow apostles self-reliant, self-confident, almost boastful. But actually, it doesn't. Far from that. In fact, the opposite is the case. So we'll look at our text tonight under three headings. First of these is verses 7 to 12. Do not lose heart. Death leads to life. Do not lose heart. Death leads to life. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? Well, it's, it's certainly Christ by his spirit in the life of a believer, in the life of the apostle, but it's actually a bit more specific than that. 
it's the new covenant ministry itself. It's verse 6. The light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. The treasury is what unbelievers have veiled from them by Satan in verse 4. It's the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. I think it's both the ministry that Paul has as well as the presence and the power of the one who gives the ministry. And so Paul says that this treasure has been placed in jars of clay. In the ancient world, much like today, um, vessels are made from various materials, whether it's metal or glass. Uh, and one of the most common and, and certainly the cheapest would be clay. Think in your mind, single, single use. You don't replace single use by definition. That's why it's called single use. Um, they're cheap, often unattractive, often um, fragile. And you see, this makes the contrast that the Apostle Paul makes all the more magnificent. The worth is not in the vessel. It's in the treasure itself. And I just want to take a quick aside. And I just wonder for those of us listening at home or here that might be disqualifying ourselves from ministry here at Charlotte Chapel or maybe the church that you attend because you look upon people that serve and what you see is power and strength. And when you look at yourself, you see weakness. And so what happens is, whether through fear or pride, you withdraw from doing the ministry that the Lord has, and therefore it goes undone. But what's encouraging is that this text right here tells us that whether it's the Apostle Paul or our Pastor Paul Reese, or whether it's the evangelist, the evangelist Billy Graham or the evangelist Bill Dowell, whoever it is here at Charlotte Chapel or anywhere else, the power and the strength and the means of ministry comes from the treasure and not from the vessel. It comes from the glorious light of the gospel revealed in the face of Christ. So we do not lose heart and we get up and do. We serve. Get in touch if you're not serving anywhere and you want to find an area that you can serve the Lord Jesus Christ in all of your clay jar goodness. But the problem in Corinth is not that Paul looks amazing and the Corinthians feel inadequate. That's not the issue. It's actually the opposite. Paul looks weak. That's been the complaint from a number of Corinthians. Um, you can see it throughout the letters, 1 Corinthians 4 and throughout this letter as well. And especially with the arrival of these, what does Liam call them, super Jewishy Ted Talky braggers. These super apostles that have arrived on the scene, all guns blaring, big on rhetoric, powerful looking. And compared to them, Paul and his ministry look weak. If Paul's ministry was a job advert in Indeed, you'd get about zero applications. It's not looking good. Verses 9 and 10 actually give us a bit of a condensed flavor. Hard-pressed, the apostles are perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Uh, if you want to get a further explanation of these um, struggles, just go to chapter 6 and chapter 11 later on tonight in 2 Corinthians and read at your leisure, but there's, there's physical suffering, there's emotional suffering, there's psychological suffering. And so some people in Corinth where they were asking, if this New Testament ministry is so glorious like you say, Paul, well then why is your life such a mess? 
Opposition, beatings, shipwrecks. You know, if, uh, if Christianity was a, a sales thing, Paul would not be your PR guy. He would not be the poster boy. But actually, from Paul's perspective, he's like, no, exactly. <laughs> I am the right person. This is right. Yes, this is what ministry is like. Yes, I am weak. Yes, I do suffer. He doesn't shy away from it at all. And in fact, he says in verse 7, that's the purpose of God placing this glorious treasure in this jar of clay. It's to show that the all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. And he goes on to tell them how it is that he keeps going, why it is that he doesn't lose heart in all of this suffering. It's, Paul, it's because of this. Paul knows that the pattern of new covenant ministry is life through death. Let's have a look at verses 11 and 12. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The, the death of Jesus in Paul's body, that theme, the death of Jesus in Paul's body, is basically a way of Paul speaking about his physical, emotional uh, suffering and pain associated with new covenant ministry. Um, earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's already said that he believes the apostles are under the sentence of death, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. He's actually likened his ministry amazingly to that of a captured soldier being led to his slaughter awaiting death, all the while emanating this uh, aroma that signals both life to others and death. How is this the case? How is it that, that Paul, Paul's death equals life? Well, there's nothing particularly special about the Apostle Paul's body. It's not like each time he gets whipped or scourged, somebody suddenly thinks, ah, Jesus is the Messiah. I must trust him. No, it doesn't work like that. Paul's, Paul's death, his, his suffering, his emotional and physical and psychological pain come as a result of the message that he preaches. And we see this time and time again. Take the book of Acts. Paul preaches. What happens? He gets beaten, chased out, almost dies. But then people believe there's a life produced. So the life and death in these, in verses 11 and 12, um, point to this sacrifice, but there's, there's more as well. If you look at verse 11, uh, that phrase, given over, we're always being given over. So in, in the original, uh, that verb used is the same used as the Lord Jesus being given over. Um, Galatians 2.20, Romans 4.25, that great text in Galatians, that it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me, the one who gave himself for me. It's that same verb. So there's this theme of sacrifice coming through. So Paul doesn't lose heart because he sees the death of Jesus as the paradigm and the pattern for his ministry. Remember, it was Jesus that told him, I will show him how much he must suffer for me. And so it is, in many ways, for all followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not apostles, and yet we have the same ministry or a similar ministry. Jesus said, whoever will follow me must deny himself. And whoever loses their life for my sake will live. And it wasn't 
the healings and the good works of Jesus uh, that garnered opposition, was it? It was miracles actually won crowds, but it was his words that got him crucified. And same for us, it's not our good works that will find opposition, but actually it is our proclamation. It's our declaration of the excellencies of Christ, of his goodness, of his righteousness, of the need for sinners to repent. It's actually the commendation of ourselves as righteous in God's sight, which is bold, but it's true. And so we don't lose heart because whether you're a gospel worker or whether you're a gospel sharer, we all fall into those categories. This is new covenant ministry. This is the way God designed it, death leading to life. And it's actually only as we open our mouths and as you speak, whether it's to your wife, your unbelieving wife or husband, or the family member in your home or your child, or uh, that girl on the course that you've been meaning to speak to, it's only as you open your mouth and proclaim the truth of the gospel that opposition comes. Suffering may follow, but actually that's how eternal life is grasped by those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you speak, as you die to self, life is brought. So the apostle Paul doesn't lose heart because he knows that death leads to life. There's a second reason he doesn't lose heart, and this is point number two. Even if death does come, he serves a God who raises from the dead. Verses 13 to 15, don't lose heart because death leads to resurrection. So look at verses 13 and 14. It is written, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. The Apostle Paul, he quotes Psalm 16 here, which if you read the whole psalm, it recalls the near-death experience of one of God's faithful saints. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. And it's in this calling uh, that he is saved. It's that wonderful psalm that ends precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his faithful servants. It was by faith the psalmist spoke and therefore was saved. And so Paul applies this truth to his own ministry. We also believe and therefore speak. Like the psalmist, Paul says, we speak. However, we do so with greater assurance. Look at verse 14. He says, because, there's the condition, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Unlike the psalmist, Paul says, we stand on this side of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. New covenant ministry and therefore new covenant ministers, they speak in light of the greater and more glorious promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're seeing is only type and picture in the Old Testament is fulfillment and promise in the new of all who trust in him. So why doesn't Paul lose heart? Well, even in the face of death, which he faced many times, he serves the God that raises from the dead. But it's actually more than that. You know, it's never just an individualistic thing with Paul. Paul actually sees himself in this grand cosmic plan with the other Corinthians. 
verse 14 again. It says, the Father will raise Christ's church. Oh no, the Father will raise Christ's church and he will present us with you. So Paul's mind fast forwards, as it so often does, to the end of the age, to the end of all things. And he sees himself amongst this glorious community of every tribe and tongue and nation and Corinthians presented by Christ to the Father. And there's a note of judgment in this passage as well. That verb present, to present us to you, it's used a number of ways. And one of them is to present an individual in front of a king or a royal official in preparation for judgment. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 10, the context of this is a final judgment. And so Paul's mind goes to that final judgment. And so I just want to um, take a second. If you are not a Christian here today, uh, and all this talk of final judgment that you've heard about in the Bible before or you've just heard about now um, makes you question, um, I just want to say that the scriptures are so clear that there's a God and he is going to bring to account every single thing in this world. He is the perfect judge and he's going to judge in righteousness and there's a, a, a day that has been appointed for this. All of our thoughts and our actions and our entire life and if every single one of us in this room and at this live stream were to stand in front of God in our own life, in our own goodness, in our own righteous deeds, we would be guilty. We are guilty. But the glorious news of the gospel, the gospel that draws us here, is that there was one who stepped in our place. He was given over, Romans 4.25 says. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. And the entrance fee, the, the pass mark to get into this glorious heaven to find forgiveness is faith. It's to look to the one God provided, to turn from your sin and turn to him. And if you've not done that today, if you are uh, visiting with a friend, I would love to speak to you. After the service, there's a, a, a connect point out on the corner. Please come and see me or maybe speak to the person that brought you. So Paul doesn't lose heart because his mind goes to the end of the age, it's eschatology, uh, but he, his mind also turns to, to doxology, which is basically praise, the praise of God. Paul is a man motivated and enamored with the glory of the triune God. Look at verse 15, he says, all of this, all of my speaking, all of my suffering are actually for the Corinthians' benefit. As well as the unshakable hope of the resurrection, Paul's ministry encouragements turn to the salvation of others and the glory of God. Paul doesn't lose heart because as he suffers through speaking, the grace of the gospel gathers, it saves, and it brings praise and glory to God and thanksgiving to the lips of all those who he rescues. And I don't know about you, but often my, um, the way I think about gospel proclamation or sharing something of Jesus with my neighbor or my friend or my family member, it doesn't often go to the desire to bring glory to God and the thought of the wonderful potential resurrected life of my family members. Often it's sometimes out of duty or fear. But actually in black and white here is the truth. Belief, a firm belief in the reality of the resurrection and a final judgment, it leads us to speaking, which leads to more 
and more people receiving salvation and bringing thanksgiving that overflow to the glory of God. So I wonder, maybe a practical step, why not next time the opportunity comes to speak about Jesus and you're feeling fearful or dutiful, maybe try to picture in your mind what it might be to see this brother, sister, friend, colleague at the end of the age, glorified, resurrected because they have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and their lips too are bringing thanksgiving and glory to God. Maybe that as a vision will drive out fear better than uh, duty or some other thing. So Paul doesn't lose heart because the resurrection is certain and it moves him to speak. Point number three, verses 16 to 18. Do not lose heart for death leads to glory. I think uh, probably Paul's right hook, Paul's kind of reason par excellence for not losing heart is found in these verses. We'll read them again. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The sufferings, the beatings, and the apparent death sentence that are, take, uh, is, are taking its toll on Paul, um, so much so that he describes himself as, uh, as wasting away. Now, um, I don't want us to misunderstand. Paul's not trying to divide like the body and the spirit, that, that the body's bad and the, the spirit's good. It's not just his body that's wasting away and the spirit that's being renewed. But actually, he's really dividing the old man and the new man. The old man, uh, Paul outside of Christ, that's wasting away. But um, uh, it's Paul's earthly life, as it were. The, the one, the, his life that'll come to an end at the end of the age. Um, so whether it's physical suffering through his trials or whether it's the sacrificial giving over uh, of pleasures and comforts in this life, there's a wasting away. And yet, at the exact same time, there is an inward renewal. Internally, his inner man is being renewed, strengthened, glorified. This image is, um, if you've ever read uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, um, one of Oscar Wilde's books, it's uh, Paul's example here, his picture is the exact opposite in uh, Dorian Gray. So in that story, vain Dorian Gray, he has his portrait painted. And when it's finished, he laments, how sad, I shall grow old and horrible, but this picture will never be older. If it were I who was always to be young and the picture that was to grow old, I would give my soul for that. Well, he got his wish. And the portrait that was painted actually became a mirror of his own soul, which showed every sign of evil and aging. And so he locked it away from the world uh, so that they couldn't see the truth about himself. And he deceived others with his outward appearance of one who was young and pure and handsome. And the contrast between the loathsome evil uh, and wicked painting, the canvas, fed by mad, ravenous passions, um, and the outward exquisite appearance of his beauty grew more stark with each day, day after day. But in Paul's case, and in your case, brother or sister, 
though outwardly we might be withered, crushed, pounded by life's hardships. Actually, when we look with eyes of faith, the image of us that hangs in heaven, that glorious building that's being built, is being renewed day by day, strength to strength. Paul sees the withering. He sees the trials as actually achieving something. It's not purposeless. It's nothing's purposeless in the economy of God. Verse 17, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Uh, Paul begins this great list of contrasts all the way down to chapter 5, verse 8. Um, Paul has suffered greatly. Uh, in fact, uh, compared to many human beings, Paul's had a pretty rough deal. And he's not minimizing suffering. That's not what he's doing. When he says light and momentary, that's not insignificant. That's not what he's saying. It's light and momentary in comparison. Paul will have felt hunger pains, the cold from sleeping outdoors, whips on uh, his flesh, the heartache of fellow gospel workers deserting him, the loss of loved ones and the anguish of the churches which were so open to false teaching. These things are tangible. They're real. He felt them. Christianity does not deny suffering. It does not minimize pain. But it transforms it. It gives meaning to it. It gives purpose to it. And so the apostle, as we should, he considers these things, all of his sufferings, as light in opposition to the great weight of the reality of the glory to come. His suffering was daily as an apostle, but actually he says it will be momentary in comparison to the eternal. The afflictions actually work together to achieve a greater glory. And so I think this applies directly initially to gospel workers, brothers and sisters, those of us that preach and teach and those of us that are going into full-time ministry. We do not lose heart. As we preach and as we speak and as we teach and as we declare the glory of Christ, we are going to face opposition. Sometimes, sadly, internally from our own people, Others from outside the church. We see in so many of Paul's letters the warning of those who would distort the word. But we don't lose heart. We're bold. We proclaim the truth. We lay it out plainly. Knowing that when opposition comes, when we suffer, especially for the word's sake, it is working in us a greater glory. Brothers and sisters, this applies to us as well. As you face opposition for the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's from that family member or that other students living in your flat or that boy or girl at school, that person that's sick and tired of you mentioning Jesus or talking about church or the colleague that's got it in for you because of the way that you live, whatever discomfort, whatever awkwardness, whatever loss or attack you face, real though it is, is working in you, is resulting in you, is achieving in you a greater glory that will far outstrip 
anything that you experience in this life. But God doesn't only use difficulties that we face for the proclamation of the gospel. You might be thinking, what about my struggle? That's not to do with proclaiming the gospel or it's nothing to do with um, opposition for Jesus Christ. What about my job loss or my husband's job loss that's led to financial difficulty? What about the health implication that is just broken into my family's life that means that I'm now caring for my spouse day after day after day? The marital breakdown that seems to have left wounds that can't be healed. The loss of that child or loved one. Whether it's criticism, COVID, cancer, the truth of this text and the rest of the Bible is that it's not purposeless. It's actually achieving for us glory. It's renewing in us more glory for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. There's intention, there's purpose. And so if we can see the pain of living in this broken world with all of its intrusions, with all of its heartaches, in the light of eternity, with eyes of faith, the promise is that the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure how, will renew in us a greater weight of glory. Outwardly, brothers and sisters, we waste. We waste away. But inwardly, there is a great and glorious temple being renewed. Your suffering, your struggles, your opposition, they are not purposeless. They are achieving for us something more glorious. No eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has conceived the things that God has in store for those who love him. And so no pain will be wasted, no tear missed from God's rejuvenating purposes. A thousand years from now into the new creation, our troubles will be light, momentary, in comparison to the glory, because we will be in the presence of the King forever. But until then, and this is the final sentence, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Brothers and sisters, let's fix our eyes on the eternal. Let's look with eyes of faith and see what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, we are weak, we are fearful, we are broken, but you are glorious, you are magnificent, you are weighty, you are beautiful, you are significant. And you have in your wise and good purposes chosen to place the treasure of the glory of Christ in these weak vessels so that the all-surpassing power will be seen to be yours and not from us. And we thank you for that. Father, we struggle, we suffer, day by day it seems. And at times, Lord, we are tempted to despair. But the promise of your word is that our sufferings are not in vain. 
that you are achieving for us from our afflictions, from our pain, from our suffering. When we have eyes of faith to look to Christ and to trust your promises, you're working in us a weight of glory that far outweighs it all. And so we fix our eyes upon you. We fix our eyes upon your son. We ask that you would help us. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. For we pray in Christ's name.